Yes, Father, it is at your altar that we come, your altar that we sit, marveling, embraced, overwhelmed by all that you have done for us, the price that you paid for each and every one of us. Thank you is never enough, but we say thank you nonetheless. Help us now as we come to listen come to understand, to hear what you have to speak and say and share with us on this day. Be with Alistair as he speaks. Be with each of us as we listen. In your mighty name, amen. Thanks, guys. So we're going to hear the reading in a minute, but just not yet. <laughs> just let, um, we're um, reading in Paul's first letter to Corinthians, to the Corinthians. Uh, I think I remember telling you ages ago that Paul's first letter to the Corinthians is, in actual fact, Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. And what we have as a second Corinthians is Paul's fourth letter to the Corinthians, in all probability. So that's really confusing. Um, but it's quite obvious from inside the text that there are letters written and received that we don't have, uh, which slot in about. First Corinthians is a response to a letter that was written. So that's really First Corinthians, uh, an earlier letter. Anyway, just to confuse you. So Corinthians written to a new church that Paul himself was involved in planting, uh, a church on the Isthmus of the Peloponnese, oh, I never get that word right, uh, uh, Greece. Um, you know the bit with three prongs that sticks down, yeah, when you look at a map of Greece? Well, it's the, Corinth was at the bit that connects that Isthmus to the northern part of Greece. There should be a map up there, but there isn't. Um, it doesn't really matter. Uh, because actually, as we've seen going along, Corinth as a city had a lot in common with Glasgow or any big city in the 21st century. As strange as that may seem, uh, life, uh, there's nothing new under the sun. A busy port city, a city that was a crossing place for commercial trading routes, a city that was a, a melting pot for people of cultures in the east and the west and the north and the south. Uh, a place where there was great riches and also great poverty. There were slaves and there were free people. There were Jewish communities. There were Gentile communities. And so an absolute melting pot, and the church represented that melting pot as well, as we do here to some extent. Uh, so this church, the only church, so let's say that the church in Corinth was a city center church too. We don't know exactly where they met, but they were the Christian church in the city. And so we've got this cross-cultural church in a community that has a very checkered history. There's a lot of money for some people. There's been a, a history of license. It's a port city, and we all know about port cities. It had uh, a, a whole pagan backdrop of, of um, prostitution um, about 150 years or so before that. 
but very often where a place has got a, a history of something, it, it just kind of it carries on. And we saw earlier on in, in reading through the letter that the church at Corinth was not exempt from uh, questions of sexual immorality that Paul had to write and address. And so we're currently looking at a section that, uh, that goes from chapter 8 right through to uh, chapter 10. And it's all about idol feasts. Now, it's going to sound or seem, and, and we began to look at this last week, incredibly irrelevant. What do idol feasts have to do for us? So let me just recap a little bit of the background scenario to what that involved so that you can begin to see that there are not the same things, but there are parallels in, in Glasgow in, in the 21st century. So lots of the people who were part of the church would belong, would, would, would be uh, tradesmen of one description or another, or they would be involved in commerce of one to one degree or another. Everyone had a job. Uh, well, most people had a job. And skilled jobs, or, or jobs uh, that, that, that where a number of people did the same thing, were often gathered around uh, they had their own trade guilds. I said to you last week that, that the origins of, of Freemasonry are in masonry. Uh, it's, it's a guild. The, the guild's house, the, the trade guild's house is, is just uh, over here in Glasgow. And so every guild, every profession, every occupation would have its club, if you like, associated with it. And because this was a pagan city, there were, to greater or lesser degrees, religious undertones or overtones. And people used to gather uh, in their, their trade club, so to speak. And they would have their own place, maybe their own shrine or temple that was associated with it. And so they would have meals, and, and their, uh, their, their trade, their craft, might well have a whole uh, kind of religious division to it. Freemasonry, which began, and for, for many people, for many guys, operates as a way to advance your career. It's a way to get on. That's how a lot of people get into Freemasonry in the first place, because it's just a kind of club of who you know and who might help you move forward in your job and get a promotion, get a little bit of advancement, networking, all that kind of stuff. But of course, Freemasonry at its higher levels has a whole religious um, setup, degrees that people progress through. There are rituals. It's, it's loosely connected with imagery from the Old Testament, the grand architect of the universe, and so on. And so there's a whole religious dimension to Freemasonry at one level, whilst at another level, it's just something that you hope is going to get you a connection that will move you on in your job. So, to some extent, it still exists. I suppose every time we have an orange band walking past here, at one level, that's a club for people to go to in communities. Lots of people just end up being in an orange lodge because that's what other guys do, and that's how you meet people, and that's how you, you move on. That's just how you function in your community. But of course, there's a whole uh, religious agenda in terms of sectarianism and defining yourself not just by what you're for, but more commonly by what you're against. 
So these things still exist. And the problem was that in Paul's day, uh, or in the, in the, the, the church community, the the temples, the pagan temples that, that gathered around different occupations and professions and trades and so on, uh, they had a little bit of ritual and a little bit of worship attached to them. And they would have feasts, they would have celebratory feasts and meals in the temples. And people would dedicate meat, they would bring meat as an offering to appease, you know, the god of leather work or whatever, so that I get a really good contract. You know, if I appease the, uh, the, the you know, the, 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 the God of, of, uh, of leather work, then perhaps I will, I will get the contract for, uh, you know, a whole set of um, leather shields or something like that for the Roman army. I don't know, I'm making this stuff up. And so it would be tempting for people then to, to go and to offer uh, to make an offering, to bring some meat which would be dedicated in the temple, and it would be given to the priests, and what the priests couldn't eat, because if you end up with a load of meat, it's going to go off. So what are you going to do with it? You either give it away, or more commonly, you sell it. So now the butcher shop is full of meat that's been dedicated in a pagan temple. So on two fronts, on two fronts, if you want to move on in your career, you could do worse than just go along to your trade guild temple, take part in the rituals, eat the feasts, meet the people, uh, greasy palms, all that kind of stuff. But even if you didn't, if you went to the shops to buy meat, the chances are the meat you were going to buy had already made an appearance in one of these temples. Problem for the Christian. Okay, there's the scenario in Corinth. Now you're a Christian. You've pledged allegiance to the living God, and you've come to, faith, to put your faith in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. You've come to believe and understand that there is only one God, not a million little pagan gods. You've come to believe that Jesus Christ is, is God come in the person of His Son. You've come to believe that there is no name in heaven and on earth other than Jesus by which people can be saved. You've come to understand that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And you've pledged yourself to Him. So how can I now go to a pagan temple? How are your way pure? How are you meant to live with integrity as a Christian in your workplace? How are you meant to get on in Hollywood if the director says you have to sleep with him? How are you meant to get on as cabin crew if sexual immorality is just part of what goes on in that world? How are you meant to get on in uh, business if dodgy dealing is just part of the way your company does it? I know we covered all this last week, but I'm setting the scene because you weren't all here last week, and this week's reading makes no sense unless you understand last week's. So there's the scenario. Now, some Christians squared it in their heads by saying, they're blocks of wood and they're lumps of stone, and it means nothing. And as a Christian, I'm free from all that worrying and obsessing about dietary laws and requirements. Jesus has set me free. Jesus has set me free from the law and the rule book. He set me free because Jesus fulfilled it all for me, and then Jesus died on the cross to pay the price for all my shortcomings. 
And so I'm free. And so I can eat with a clear conscience because this is all meaningless. But then there were others, and Paul calls them the weaker brethren, the younger Christians, or maybe just the ones who have just found enough courage to say, no, as a Christian, I can no longer do that. As a Christian, I can no longer hang out with you. As a Christian, I'm going to have to choose a different way or a different group of friends. As a Christian, I can't come to your party because it would compromise the stand I've taken for Jesus, and I know it would just pull me back into a world that I've just left. And so Paul talks to the church, and some of them are saying, well, we have this knowledge and freedom, so it's fine. It doesn't matter. But on the other hand, Paul was saying, yeah, but what about this person here? Or what about that person there? Because they're looking at you, not bothering, and thinking, oh, maybe I don't have to take too much of a stand as a Christian. Maybe I, I don't have to stand up and be counted. Maybe I can just blend in. Maybe I can just do what I've always done and I'll just keep the Jesus bit quiet. That's just a wee private thing. Now, this next chapter, when we read it, isn't going to look like it's got anything to do with the one we've just looked at and I've just gone over with you. But it does. So bear with it. David. We're reading out 1 Corinthians chapter 9, from verse 1 at the beginning through to verse 18. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? And have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not the result of my work in the Lord? Even though I may not be an apostle to others, surely I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who sit in judgment on me. Don't we have the right to food and drink? Don't we have the right to take a believing wife along with us, as do the other apostles and the Lord's brothers and Cephas? Or is, it, or is it only I and Barnabas who lack the right to not work for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat its grapes? Who tends a flock and does not drink the milk? Do I say this merely on human authority? Doesn't the law say the same thing? For it is written in the law of Moses, do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain. Is it about the oxen that God is concerned? Surely he says this for us, doesn't he? Yes, this was written for us, because whoever plows and threshes should be able to do so in the hope of sharing in the harvest. If we have sown spiritual seed among you, is it too much if we reap a material harvest from you? If others have this right of support from you, shouldn't we have it all the more? But we did not use this right. On the contrary, we put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. Don't you know that those who serve in the temple get their food from the temple, and that those who serve at the altar share in what is offered on the altar? In the same way, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. But I have not used any of these rights Am I not writing this in the hope that you will do such things for me? For I would rather die than allow anyone to deprive me of this boast. For when I preach the gospel, I cannot boast, since 
I am compelled to preach. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. If I preach voluntarily, I have a reward. If not voluntarily, I am simply discharging the trust committed to me. What then is my reward? Just this, that in preaching the gospel, I may offer it free of charge, and so not make full use of my rights as a preacher of the gospel. Amen. May God add his blessing to this reading. Thanks, David. Now you're worried that if that was just the intro and this is a sermon, how long on earth is he going to be up here for? Fear not. I was going to do read an extra bit, but I'm just bearing... Yeah, we'll see how we go. So what does this that we've just read have to do with that? So let me paraphrase it. Paul has been saying to them, in your workplace, these are the perks. The idol feasts, the little bit of advancement, the club. These are the things that uh, are the little bit on the side of the work that you do. But ask yourself what the impact of your perks, you with a clear conscience who, who can carry on going and, and just living the way you used to do and, and doing all the things that, that your job or your workplace or your guild, your trade guild would let you do, or if you're just going to carry on hanging out with the same people and it's not going to look different that you're a Christian, what's the impact of that on the new Christian, on the young Christian? What's the impact of that on the rest of the church? Because we live in a very individualistic society. And, and what was true then is true now. And Paul is charging these uh, mature, in their own eyes, Christians to think about the rest of the church. You know, there's a theme that goes through this whole letter of 1 Corinthians. And it's the theme of, of loving unity within the church. You are not your own. You were bought at a price, he says earlier on. He starts off by taking them to task for splitting up into leadership factions with their, uh, you know, um, kind of pop idol approach to preachers and, and apostles and pastors. Who, who's, who's your favorite? All the way through, we come back to this theme, same theme that here is a church that hasn't fully grasped what it means to have been bought by Jesus at great cost to Him in order that you would then serve Jesus and serve Jesus by loving one another, by prioritizing other people and your impact upon them over what suits you. So sexual immorality doesn't just affect you, it sends a message to the church. What you do to get on in your work or how you live to suit your own comfort or convenience or advancement is not just about you. It's about what that says about your faith and your discipleship and your relationship to the rest of the church. You are not your own. I am not my own. And so this chapter is Paul saying, do you want to see how this works in my life? Okay. He said, you, 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 want, to, you want to say that you're free, free in Jesus to live any way that you want to live. So he starts off saying, am I not free? <laughs> of course I'm free. 
Am I not an apostle? How free is that? I mean, I am, you know, super free because I'm like called to be an apostle of the gospel. I know what I'm talking about. I'm called and sent by Jesus. Have I not seen Jesus, my Lord? So if Paul had any reason to say, do you know what? Jesus has set me so free, I can do what I like. Are you not the result of my work in the Lord? Even though I may not be an apostle to others, surely I am to you because I planted this church. And you're the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. The fact that there's a church here, says Paul, is proof, if proof were needed, that Jesus is called and using me as an apostle. You guys are evidence of that. And so Paul says, all right, how free, how, how much knowledge, how, much, how close to God do you want someone to be? All right, he says, think about the apostle that planted this church. This is my defense to those who sit in judgment on me, because there were some people that looked down on Paul. We saw that earlier on. Some people thought, nah, I think I prefer Peter. Other people thought, nah, Paulus, he's my man. So there were people that, you know, had got over Paul and had moved on. They thought Apollos was smarter because he was a pretty smart dude. Or they thought that Peter was more important because he was Jesus' right-hand man and planted the church in Jerusalem. So Paul, yeah, maybe number three. He said, this is my defense to those who sit in judgment on me. Don't we have the right to food and drink? Don't we have the right to take a believing wife along with us? Him and Barnabas, but he wasn't married. As do all the other apostles and the Lord's brothers. We reference there to James and Jude and Jesus' brothers, the other children of Mary and Joseph, who were part of the leadership of the church. James, Jesus' half-brother, headed up the church with Peter in Jerusalem. Or is it only I and Barnabas who lack the right to not work for a living? So basically he's saying, as an apostle, I would have the right to look to you guys to fund me, finance me, support me, pay for me, give me a stipend, give so that my ministry could be sustained and supported. And there's a valid point there. Because actually, yes, Paul did have the right. And actually, it begs the question, was the church in Corinth not actually putting its hand in its pocket? Was the church in Corinth so free that they didn't realize that they had obligations to sustain and support and fund the ministry? And that's a 21st century question for us too. Because I'm put in here by the Church of Scotland, and I'm paid for by the Church of Scotland. But, you know, you guys, all of us together have an obligation to fund and give and sustain and support the work of the kingdom of God in Glasgow. And so whilst Paul is saying, you know, don't I have the right to expect that you would support and finance my ministry? He's actually going on to say, but you know, I chose not to do that. I chose not to look for the parks. I chose not to look for what I might get out of my ministry in order that I might support you, 
in order that I might minister to you, in order that I might not impose a burden on you. And so then he goes on. Who serves as a soldier and doesn't get paid for it? Who plants a vineyard and doesn't have a bottle of wine? Who tends a flock and doesn't get some milk or some meat out of it? Do I say this merely on human authority? He said, well, let's see what the Bible says. Oh, Moses, in the law of Moses, it says, do not muzzle an ox while it's treading out the grain. So even cattle get to eat as they work. Is God concerned about oxen? He says this for us. It's a lesson for us. Whoever plows and threshes should be able to do so in the hope of sharing in the harvest. And so Paul recognizes that as an apostle, he has the right He has the right to expect perks, quote-unquote, in his job. But he won't take them. He won't take them. He won't go cap in hand to the church in Corinth and insist that they pay their tithes and, and give him a stipend and all that. Why? Because he doesn't want to burden this young, new church with its financial insecurities. See, what Paul is saying here in answer to the question about these idol feasts and so on is you want to be free to have the best of whatever you might get. You want to trumpet loud your freedom as a Christian and to go to your idol feasts and to uh, schmooze your future boss and, and get the next contract and do whatever it takes to keep him with your job. And all the while, you're ignoring the fact that there are young Christians saying, can you be a Christian and still do that? Can you be a Christian and still take a backhander? Can you be a Christian and, and, you know, and, and still go along to some pagan club that has religious rituals and stuff that's nothing to do with Jesus and that be okay? Can you still do that? I'm confused now. I, I thought as a Christian I was supposed to come out and be separate. I thought as a Christian I was supposed to put down a marker that said I was living differently now. I thought as a Christian I was supposed to put the body of Christ first and deny myself in order that I might serve the body of Christ. And Paul's saying, well, case in point, I could I could, but I choose not to. I could expect perks to my apostleship from you, but you know what? I'm not actually going to do it. I'm not going to do it. We did not use this right. On the contrary, you've hit up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. And then I don't know if this is meant to be a wee dig to the priests. You know, there were priests in some of these temples. He says, don't you know that those who serve in the temple get their food from the temple? Those who serve in the altar share in what's offered on the altar. In the same way, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. But I have not used any of these rites. And I'm not writing in the hope that you will do such things for me. This is not a wee backhanded way of saying, going to please have a whip round because I'm a wee bit short this month. 
I'd rather die than allow anyone to deprive me of this boast. For when I preach the gospel, I cannot boast since I'm compelled to preach. And here we get to the heart of it. You know, Paul's not a Christian saying, how much can I get away with? Or how close to the line can I still walk? Paul is a Christian saying, how can I give myself completely to the gospel of Jesus? How can I give myself absolutely? I'm compelled to preach. When we met to pray earlier on, I'm going to read these verses again. We read these verses from Isaiah 53. Isaiah writing, oh, 500 years before Jesus wrote this prophetic passage which just points forward to, and as we hear it, reminds us of what Jesus has done for us. This is the cost that Jesus bore. Who has believed our message, says Isaiah, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. And despite the fact that every time Jesus is cast in a film, he's a good-looking guy. Listen to this next line. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In Paul's heart was an understanding of the Jesus who had given his all utterly, looking like he was condemned, hated, and despised. And in that sacrifice was bearing the price of our freedom, of our forgiveness, of our relationship with the Father, of our restoration to the living God in whose image we're made. And so when Paul's preaching the gospel, 
He's not looking on it as a nice little learner. He's not looking to see what he can get out of it. He's wanting to see, how can I give my utmost for the one who gave everything for me? As he gave himself entirely, how might I, asks Paul, give myself entirely? What does that look like for you in Corinth, he asks? Seeing how close to the line you can walk and still get away with it. Seeing how much you can keep in with your old life. Or are you, he says, called to come out? And what does that look like? Are you called to inconvenience or hardship? Are you called to say the awkward no to your trade guild? Or the dinner that could get you promotion? Or the group of friends that want to drag you back into addiction? How can you say no? How can I say no? How can you say no? What does it look like? What does it look like for us to be so utterly devoted to Jesus that we prioritize him and we think about the impact of our living and our serving and our loving on one another. If I preach voluntarily, he says, I have a reward. <laughs> What's his reward? Seeing people come to know Jesus. And if not voluntarily, even if I'm having a bad day and I really don't feel like it when I get up, I'm simply discharging the trust committed to me. What then is my reward? Just this, that in preaching the gospel, I may offer it free of charge and not make full use of my rights as a preacher of the gospel. And so, yeah, there's a lot of overlap with what we heard last week. But Paul just wants the people in Corinth to look at him and say, do you know, if anybody could say, there's got to be some advantages to being an apostle, <laughs> it would be Paul. But rather, Paul says, no, I'm, I'm not looking to see what I can get out of being an apostle. I'm looking to see what I can give what I can give of my life and of who I am for the sake of the kingdom. Now, I was going to go on and do the next bit today, but there's not time in it. You've listened well, so I'm going to draw the line there. Paul wasn't asking the church to give to him. He was pointing out that he had the privilege of belonging to the Jesus who had bought his pardon and his healing and his forgiveness and asking the church at Corinth to think about their own willingness to put Jesus first and foremost and to take whatever hit that meant in terms of how they lived their lives who they hung out with, where they went, what they did, and how they 
took advantage or didn't take advantage. And so I don't know what it looks like for you. But in the places where you work, where you study, where you live, where you go, there's an outworking to be done. Before the Christians round about you, there's an example to be set. And in terms of the cost of discipleship, well, Paul knew the fullness of the cost of discipleship. And ironically, he said he wasn't looking for what the church at Corinth might provide for him. But ironically, part of the requirement, and he would come back to it in his second letter to the Corinthians, or rather his fourth letter, that actually their giving and their commitment to supporting and sustaining the body of Christ was part of theirs. The inconvenient cost of all of our discipleship. So we'll come on and we'll read the next two bits which follow on from it. We're going to be in this for a week or two. But ask yourself what it looks like. Ask yourself what it looks like. Where are the lines that you need to draw or maybe redraw? Where do you need to recognize afresh what Jesus has done for you as we read in the words of Isaiah? And ask yourself, what does that require of me in response? Let's pray together. Loving God, our Heavenly Father, we recognize in these words a powerful challenge. A challenge, Lord, to the ease and the complacency that so readily settles on us. A challenge to the selfish individualism that our world and human nature uh, disposes us to. A powerful challenge to remember what it cost Jesus to call us his friends. A powerful challenge that reminds us that in the ordinary weft and weave of our daily existence, Lord, we have to make choices and decisions. We bring to you the ones, Lord, that we know we've handled badly, and we ask you for forgiveness. We ask you for forgiveness, Lord, where to suit our uh, ease or convenience. We've crossed or ignored lines, compromised our stand for Jesus, besmirched our integrity. And we ask that we might know anew the cleansing of Jesus. Lord, we ask that you stir in us by your Holy Spirit that same passion that we read of in Paul. He was excited just to be about your business because he was yours and for no other gain or advantage. And so, Lord, we ask you to stir in you and us our first love, our passion. We ask that you make us aware, Lord, that just as we thought about sports earlier on, there are times when we've maybe needed to extend grace to others who were weaker than us, but more commonly, we've been those who've needed the grace shown to us. And so we pray that as we've received your grace, so we may go into the ordinary places of a coming week and show your grace there as well. We pray that we may be a people marked out by grace, by kindness and by difference, 
not difficult difference, not holier-than-thou difference, but a difference marked by a quality of love, of kindness, of integrity, of holiness that stands in contrast to the ways of the world. So hear us as we pray. Equip us for the days that come. Send us, Lord, we pray, to be wise as serpents and as innocent as doves in the places that we go. For Jesus' sake, amen. Let's stand and respond now.